0: Welcome back, everybody, to the Drink and Learn podcast. I am drinks historian Elizabeth Pierce, and today I am delighted to be joined by Jane Levi. I met Jane, uh, was it last year? Was the orange? uh, uh, Well, you talked about orange. Argeries. citrus argeries. and slavery. Yes, right. Ooh. <laughs> we both spoke at a panel at the Historic New Orleans Collection. Um, I talked about lemonade, um, which is, I guess, happier. And uh, Jane talked about citrus and slavery, which was less happy. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, we're not going to talk about either of those things today. Well, the slavery a little bit, but not citrus. Um, today, I asked Jane to come on the podcast because uh, she's back, or she's back because Jane came back to New Orleans. Oh, because she she lives in England, in London, in London, in yeah. London, and she spoke at a symposium that was about wine. And specifically, she talked about fortified wine. And for those of you who have not listened to the fortified wine episode that Abigail and I did, you should go back and listen to that first because it gives you a nice background. um, And that saves Jane having to explain what fortified wine is. (laughs) (laughs) And we can just get into all the good stuff. So um, tell us just a little bit about you and um,
1: why Amanda asked you to (laughs) to
0: talk about fortified wine
1: at this symposium. Okay, well, um, I am a, mostly I'm a food historian. Um, I'm a writer. I teach sometimes at universities in London. And I specialize in the history of utopianism. So people um, having very specific ideas about how to live and how to have a better life. So wine can come into that quite often. And about food and food habits I'm especially interested in the 18th century. Um, they just always seem to have more fun then, mm-hmm. and, um, and and the clothes. <laughs> Everybody had great exactly. clothes then. Style, <laughs>
0: dining. 19th you know, century got wonderful. sort of dour, especially for the men.
1: Yes, I always I always think of of the 18th century as kind of colorful and the 19th century just gets more and more brown and grey yes. somehow, including in the food on people's <laughs> plates. <laughs> so 18th century is the one for me. And I, I do a lot of research at the moment um, on a project at King's College London with the Royal Archives. I sit in Windsor Castle and I read um, documents about food and supplies in the royal kitchens in the reign of George the Third. So... Um,
0: and That's so when, when
1: was he uh, reigning? Um, in the late, um, well, between about 1750-ish and the early 1800s. Okay. Although his, his dissolute son was the regent for certain parts of that because um, he was very unwell, possibly mad, and um, needed his oh, son to yes. take over. Okay,
0: so that's the King George that um,
1: Americans would have been very grumpy about. The absolutely, yes. yes, absolutely. And um, and he he was he was the king. Um, yeah, during the the revolution, he's the one that lost America. Right. Um, and um, I don't know if y'all are sad about that anymore. <laughs> I feel like now, <laughs> so much seems to be lost in the world right now. I think we we can't go into that.
0: Yeah. Oh, I. Uh, it's funny. I, t- I promised Jane I wouldn't make her speak about specific dates because she didn't have any paper in front of her to, and like, rattle off. And came. then there it came. But I just mostly meant the epic so that we could kind of uh, – uh, ground everybody yes in, yeah in absolutely the, the time and maybe about.
1: an easier way to do that is to go back to you mentioned the um the symposium last year where I talked about citrus and slavery and the reason that I did that um was that I'd spent a month at Mount Vernon George mm-hmm. Washington's old estate um on a fellowship that was related to the George III papers because George Washington was a general in the Revolution. At you know he was he was working in the, at the same time as as George III was king. A tale of two Georges, exactly. Yes, yeah. um, I'm going to base the this episode
0: a little bit on what you talked about it in the symposium for mm-hmm. everybody who was in, unable to attend. Uh, but then you also get to bring in some other any other stuff that you want to add because your time was cut short. Okay, um, so one of the things that i uh, abigail and i tried to uh, explain in the fortified wine episode is that they were so popular and it's this it is this uh category that is not consumed much uh, maybe there, people have heard of port I, I would say of all of the of all of the um fortified wines people have heard of port maybe mm-hmm. heard of sherry they think of sherry as you know, the thing their grandma might have a dusty bottle of in the back or pour to something your grandfather or your dad maybe brings out at Christmas. And mm. and um, and we, we tried to explain the, the sheer variety. It's not just all sweet. Um, but we have to do that because it it is just not a part of the drinking culture now.
1: Yeah, and but, I think that's true in the UK as well. I mean... It, the, those, those wines, especially the ones from Spain, the Sherrys, have become more popular and better known in sort of interesting dining establishments and bars over the last 10 years but still it's it's very similar to what you're describing but that was
0: not the case in the
1: 18th century indeed it was not so
0: (laughs) can you give us um what i really wanted you to come on today to talk about was what was how was port how was madeira in the culture. How is it consumed? How is it seen? Um, Whether that can be well, we'll get all into, you know, status and Mm. who who decided to drink what and why were some more popular than others and Mm. and all of that. And you can start with whatever, whichever uh, wine you feel, you feel like it.
1: Okay. Well, I suppose the main, um, one of the main drivers for, I think, whatever wine people a large number of people choose to drink a large amount of is its price so with a lot of these wines the the sort of ebb and flow of how popular they are can probably get related to taxation and um and trade where how easy trade is between two countries and what the tariff is being slapped on it um, was at any given time so in some instances like with port um, it started to become popular well it kind of developed and then became popular in Britain because of um, trade disputes between England and France so there had been a long long term relationship between England and France which sometimes was good sometimes wasn't and um, you know it when it was bad, there was always some kind of trade war or tariff or taxation that, that put people off importing French wines. But French wines were very had been very popular. Wine was very popular. and so um, the merchants went to Portugal to and I guess probably to Spain but they went to Portugal to find wine to replace. What they couldn't get anymore, or they could only get at very high prices from France, and they found the wines of the Douro. They really liked them. Uh, so Douro is um, an area in Portugal. It's so yes. a river, also. It's the river. It's yeah. the river that goes down to the coast um, to Oporto, which is the the town that Port is named for, um, the capital. And um, yeah, so they found those those wines on the river, and. Um, started importing those and then i'm sure you've told this the story of fortified wine is adding some brandy or other spirit to the wine in order to help it keep for longer to survive the journey by sea Mm -hmm. wherever it's going and um and port was was born from that and it turned out that people actually liked the wine even better when it had been fortified (laughs) for its journey um and and the style was born do
0: did did you encounter any um indication of why they picked those wines was it about the a taste that could be comparable to what they were missing from mm.
1: france that,
0: that then they decided to fortify or was it surely it's handy and it's cheap yeah and that's a really good fine?
1: question i don't actually know um all I've all I've read really is that um they're quite sort of fruity and mm-hmm. and full and very dark red so um you if you're reading I don't know sort of old books or pl- seeing plays um from that era then when people refer to black strap they're talking about those wines oh. so they were very dark red and um you know I think some people just like them right it was strong I yes um but i'm not sure how they compared to the french wines of the time i would imagine they were a bit different but right Be- well
0: not only because they didn't have the french wines didn't have the the brandy added but
1: yeah mm. I, i'm
0: i'm it, that just occurred to mm. me of why why portugal and why the Douro, yeah um but i I bet it started with um we like them or we get along with them no tariffs yeah. Yeah, maybe it was cheaper even than
1: Spain. Yeah, maybe, and I suppose you know the 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 thing about um, about port is that they, I mean, the way that the process works now is that they they will add the alcohol quite early in the process, so there is a lot of residual sugar still in the wine, um, and perhaps those Portuguese wines were like that then, so they were sweeter. Already. Um, And people like, you know, had a taste for sweet things then as now. Sure. So when you say it
0: became popular, can you give us, uh, can you kind of paint a picture of how port was in um, the English, at the English table or English Mm. um, parlor? And who, who was drinking it?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, because of the... My focus has been on these papers in a royal archive and working at Mount Vernon. um, I know an awful lot more about the sort of middle and upper classes than I do about the general population. That's just the direction that I've been going in for the last couple of years. So I'm not sure exactly what everyone was drinking in taverns. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably a lot more beer than, than anything else, but wine certainly was was available and when you look at the slightly more middle class or elite dining then gallons of wine and gallons of fortified wine seem to have been the order of the day so um there is a an annual dinner in the city of london which Mm -hmm. has been going on for the last 800 years or so ever since there's been a lord mayor of london and um The Lord Mayor changes every year and he has a big ceremony, a parade and a dinner at the Guildhall. And there are quite good records for for a lot of those dinners. And I was looking at them from the um, sort of early 1700s through to the mid 1800s. And the quantities of wine are just (laughs) staggering. So there are hundreds of people at these dinners, you know, maybe five to... 700 people okay. in this massive hall. So it's a it's a big crowd. Um, but, you know, they have all these committee mi- meeting notes and they decided in about, you know, 1720-something to order, they should order about 1,500 bottles of wine <laughs> um, of various kinds, um, along with gal- a gallon each of rum, arak, and uh, brandy, and... Um, And um, yeah, so and about half of those bottles were fortified wine and about half of that half was probably port and the other part Madeira and a little bit of sherry. So they really were um, allowing a couple of bottles each, really, I would say, Um, you know, one of fortified and one of claret or whatever. That's that's a New Orleans party. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely, absolutely. Um, So yes, a lot, much, much drinking to the extent that, um, yeah, they they, it would often descend into some chaos, (laughs) and they, um, in, along with this order for one and a half plus thousand bottles of wine there were also some new instructions for the yeoman of the cellar about how to manage getting this wine safely out of the cellar and to the tables and not diverted out the back door with the waiting staff who were desperate to get their hands on it so you showed a a picture of or
0: it was a painting or a lithograph yeah a
1: print of the of 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 this one of the
0: dinners um can you describe what's happening in in one of so it's a it's so imagine that there's a print of a dinner of 500 people. So yeah, yes. it's very chaotic. It's very full. Yes. But the artist uh, did make it a point to depict uh, some things that are happening and in the foreground. So yes. presumably you can see it's them. It's like
1: the the... The the staff are actually in right in the foreground of the painting, so you've got you've got this sort of perspective on this huge hall, very high vaulted hall, just filled with long tables with white tablecloths, filled with people sitting up either side of all these tables. You know, with a bottle every other place, and you know all the plates laid out. And in the foreground, the sort of the biggest figures, in a way, are the are waiting staff um, with a couple of tables with you know salvers and dishes and dish covers, and then these big um, wooden barrels of of with bottles and glasses and things and you know there's there are a couple of guys right in the corner who are tasting the wine mm-hmm. you know with their backs half turned so the, wait- to the, the, waiter, the, the waiters are the yeah. waiters are downing the wine you know or and you can just imagine you know they're checking the the bottle levels and you know taking them away before they're really finished so they get their share right or more than their share. in the back yeah.
0: yeah i feel like i've i've worked an event during tales of the cocktail when <laughs> It's like, oh, this bottle of whiskey isn't finished, but I'm going to put a cap on it and yes. put it in my very big bag yes, and take I, it home. Let's
1: let's, be, let's help clear this up. Right, yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, and so you mentioned that part of this uh, epic is uh, governed under the Prince Regent. Mm. Um, and he was uh, a bit of a... Um, well, I don't know, a, a gastronome or a
1: yes, a, g- a glutton, a gastronome, <laughs> all of the above, a, a, a lush. Um, he was very well known for his incredible appetites. Um, he loved eating. He loved drinking. He loved having a party. And um, yeah, he was. He was known as to be fairly dissolute and um, very much the opposite of his father George III who would tend to get depicted in cartoons as being very domestic and home-loving and you know a little bit mean in a way you know not quite like a king because you know he liked some sprats and a piece of toast for dinner. Whereas, what are sprats? Oh, they're just little fish, like sardine-ish, okay. herring family okay. kind of. Cheap fish, I suppose. Cheap and easy okay. to, to catch. Well, I don't know if he actually did eat not sprats. Not royal fish. Yeah, okay. exactly. So there would be cartoons of him and his wife, you know, over a little fireplace, like sort of lower middle class people, mm-hmm. whereas The Sun was all about show and display and <clears> excess. Um and, you know, was constantly overspending and needing to be bailed out um, and building improbable palaces and <laughs> so on and so forth. Oh, yeah. So if you go to Brighton... That's right. That's yes. his palace. That is his, his It's very place. fancy. It is very ever... insanely fancy. And, <laughs> and all about... Well, not entirely all about dining, but pretty much all about, all about dining and partying and... Yeah. So, what was his relationship with uh, Port and Madeira, etc.? Well, he seemed to have a very close relationship <laughs> with those drinks. Um, there are some rather fabulous um, records, you know, that actually. They, they start to speak when you read them. They're, they're kind of inventories of what was bought. So that sounds incredibly boring. Jane, I'm going to be an American and say
0: that those were inventories.
1: <laughs> okay, that's <laughs> fine. I'm sure everybody can follow along. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so account books, <laughs> Okay, let's great, say, yeah. That, that list what was purchased every month and what was coming into the kitchen and what was going to which, which part of the, the palace. And so... And they list all of the basics and then all of the most expensive things. And these lists of how much Madeira, port, sherry and so on come into the the kitchen in a month. You know, between April and May, I think, was the one that I I had on one of my slides. But I could have picked any month, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And just hundreds and hundreds of bottles of port and Madeira and sherry were coming in and being used in cooking um, and, and being consumed by, by the household, which, of course, always included lots and lots of hangers-on um, and lots of people who would um, invite themselves or who would just be there as the entourage or friends of the family, but still, just a lot, a lot. Um, so the consumption
0: of port and Madeira... I, I guess we kind of look at it now as a special thing. It's it tends to be an
1: after dinner drink, or right?
0: It, it it is it is not this all day. Um, certainly, <clears throat> we don't think about having it with with our meal. Mm. Um, but but also it is um, it's not an everyday no. kind of wine, and um, it it seems that the the attitude towards something that we today see as a uh, a beverage that's reserved for particular times or per- mm. times in the meal or particular times in the season is just ubiquitous mm. and it's it's so it isn't necessarily like a fancy no um drink
1: it just is it just is one of the obvious drinks yes i think that's right And um, actually, George Washington gives us quite a good example of that. He was known to be particularly fond of Madeira. In fact, you know, that whole group seemed to have been particularly fond of Madeira. And that partly goes back to the taxation thing that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So um, imports of Madeira into the United States were, it was much cheaper um, the tariff was much lower from between Madeira and America than it was between Madeira and England. Mm-hmm. Um, but also people had developed a huge taste for it. And when George Washington was ordering new decanters for his dining table... Um, He was ordering double decanters, by the way, Mm -hmm. (laughs) just to make sure they didn't have to be refilled too frequently during the meal. And he specifically said, you know, he needed half of them to be for Madeira and half for other wines because that was what people were drinking during the meal, so throughout the meal. Um, And he always apparently had three glasses of Madeira after dinner as well, but... It was being drunk through the as also. How big was a glass? Well, that's a good question. The glasses were smaller than our very large wine glasses of today. But then, you know, when someone says three glasses, I'm never sure. Is it only <laughs> <It's> three?
0: <laughs> Is it <laughs> only three, really, George?
1: Exactly, exactly. And given that um, meal times were very different then, so dinner... Dinner was happening at three three in the afternoon, three mm-hmm. or four in the afternoon. So, you know, um, the three glasses after dinner were happening, at, you know, in the early evening. And then right. who knows what was happening for the rest <clears throat> of the night. And you can think about, too, um, you know, this is
0: the time before electricity, and it gets dark at five mm-hmm. or, you know, five or six o'clock. And while if anybody could afford to light their home with all of the candles or whatever oil, um, it would be George Washington. But I feel like people didn't always stay up as as late. Every I think night. that's true. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm thinking if I had three glasses of Madeira, then I'm hitting the hay. I'm pretty sleepy. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, um, but it. then if you're used to drinking it all day long, then you know, I guess you develop some kind of tolerance. <laughs> right. That's true. Um, I mean, and the other thing, one thing I, I was thinking when you were talking about. Um, drinking Madeira and other sort of sweeter or more powerful wines during a meal is that, of course, then the the dining style was somewhat different. And whereas now we're very clear about, you know, moving through a series of savoury courses mm-hmm. until we have something sweet right at the end, um, previously we used to mix things up much more. Right. So you would have a lot of the dishes for the dinner on the table at the same time and some of them there would be sweet and savory available you would choose what you wanted and there would be sweet and savory available at every stage of the meal um, so I think that probably would change how you would feel about pairing your wine with with what you're eating because you would have a mixture of different different flavors and different um, yeah different palates going on much earlier in the meal. There's a show, um, I can't remember
0: now if it's, if, I'm sorry, I, I'll try to put this in the show notes when I figure out the answer. It's, <clears throat> it's either on Netflix or Amazon or something, but it's three Irish chefs mm. who travel to um, various Irish castles. Uh-huh. And at each castle, they, they find a menu for a meal that was served there mm. in the 17th and 18th century, mm-hmm. and uh, or 18th and 19th, I don't remember exactly. Like it's been a while since I've watched this. But one chef is in charge of the preparation of the the dinner. Mm-hmm. One chef is in charge of uh, acquiring the ingredients, some of which have to be like caught, like a fish, or hunted, or you know, yeah. or killed, or something. And then the other chef uh, meets with the either the owners or the um, curators or whoever still has the the place um, to learn about the history of the house. Um, But what comes out of a lot, what's interesting about a lot of these meals is that you really do get to see the variety of Mm. dishes that all land on a table at the same time. And... um. Also, that not everybody you aren't you weren't expected to necessarily take uh, take something from every dish, no. um, and that is something. So they have a dinner party; they they serve this, and yeah. People get invited, and that is the thing that all of the guests do not learn because, of course, they want to try everything yes. because all of this is very some of it's very unusual. Mm. Um, but it is you know you're you're looking at twenty. Twenty or thirty dishes yes. across the the night that yeah. you're just too full.
1: Yes, well, and I think and there are there are accounts of dinners from from that period where you might get stuck on the you know way on the other side of the table at a diagonal from the thing you like eating most of all, and there's just no chance of getting it. You know, you might be able to get. Um, a a waiter, a waiter, or someone to get you some, but you might just be stuck with the plate oh. of peas or whatever it is <laughs> that's in front of you, or the neat's tongues or whatever it is, and and that's that's pretty much your lot at a dinner.
0: If you if they're, they're served, so like the the Lord's Mayor dinner for example, mm-hmm. um, so they've ordered port and Madeira and sherry and. Uh, You mentioned other, there's SAC. Yes, which is sort of related to Sherry. uh, So you have all these things. Mm. So at least do you get to pick your drink?
1: Yes, I believe so. Yes. I mean, that was what the whole ticket system was about. What's the ticket system? Well, this this idea of trying to control the chaos. And they, they came up with this elaborate scheme of saying, well, you know, the people have to... Give a piece of paper to a waiter who then gives it to the seller yeoman who then gets the bottle and, you know, brings it back just to try and keep control of it. So I guess I think people were saying what what they wanted to drink when. Um, That also sounds like a scheme for... um waiters to find
0: other tickets or reuse tickets yeah it just you
1: could yes i i i didn't find anything that recorded the great success of this (laughs) system (laughs) but they were trying they were trying so you started to talk about america
0: with george washington Mm -hmm. um what uh what else have you did you find about it was madeira port fortified wine consumption uh, was was there anything that was different about it in the in the U.S. than in England?
1: Well, or? I think there was more Madeira here. Yeah, after the, you know, from that from that um, revolutionary period onwards mm-hmm. um, until until certainly the the Civil War, um, there's a really great collection of old menus at the University of Houston Library. They're online. You can go and have a look. It's kind of fun, um, and. There was a a restaurant in Baltimore where they've got this huge wine list and at least a third of it is different Madeiras. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've never seen a wine list with so much Madeira on it. You know, as much as, if not more Madeiras to choose from than red or white wines.
0: Well, I know when the Louisiana Purchase was signed that, Mm. and I can't remember if I said this in the last episode, so if I did, sorry. Um, The... Americans drank Madeira yeah, and the French drank champagne, of course, mm-hmm. and the Spaniards drank Malaga, which is another, which is another a fortified, fortified wine. Yeah. Yeah. So two of the three.
1: Yes. Yeah. It makes sense. I, I can believe that. And, you know, if you look at if you look at old, old cookbooks, you know, it's not always a case of, of just drinking glasses of Madeira or port or sherry. They, these these drinks are very important ingredients in a lot of other dishes for dinners so they would enrich a soup or you know as we do now you be used to soak soak sponge cakes in desserts or um that sort of thing making sauces um, and, and that seems to be like that's what lasts mm. um yes oh,
0: that and then the consumption it it and I know the nineteenth century isn't your jam, <laughs> but uh, do you have any? Uh, can you speculate about why you think all of these fell out of favor or got shifted to a post-dinner mm. um, uh, yeah. presence? Well,
1: that's a that's an interesting question. I mean, I wonder. It feels as though what we do now more is is pair a wine <clears throat> with with the thing it's been used to cook Mm -hmm. um, and that we're using a sweeter, stronger wine to go with the sweeter elements of the meal. So I guess during the 19th century, we kind of developed the dining style that we use now, which is individual courses coming one at a time. Right. um, Rather than this, you know, slightly freer expression of (laughs) all the dishes on the table in two courses but they're not courses as we think of them now because they're both more mixed um so so maybe we you know as we started narrowing down what a course was you would narrow down what goes with that in terms of drinks and glasses and all the rest of it um and i perhaps you know, I'm not an economic historian or a wine historian, <laughs> so I can only speculate that, you know, trade in other wines got freer, cheaper. Right. Um, maybe all that temperance that you mentioned, or perhaps it was before we came on on recording, but um, talking about temperance, when you start drinking again after you've been a bit more temperate, then maybe you go for the slightly less fortified wines you go for something less alcoholic I don't know
0: yeah I was thinking too um one thing I wanted to ask you when and you mentioned that you are less uh familiar with the drinking habits of the working class or the certainly the poor certainly when it Um, comes
1: to to wine but I think it was
0: but I uh, one thing that I do wonder um and maybe somebody out there, you know, you, if you know the answer to this, you can tell me where to find it. Um, I know that tea begins as a thing that's very expensive. Yes. And then over time, it becomes available mm. to the working class or the lower classes. And it's available because, um, well, because the acquisition of tea becomes cheaper. Because yes, the, exactly. Because now they have tea plantations in India and Mm. and empire, yay! Mm. Uh, But also um, there are great grades of tea, and so you can buy the cheaper stuff or you can you know use it again. And um, yesterday I was kind of I was wondering about um, the consumption of port and Madeira among the working or lower class, but it doesn't seem in the very little that I've read about. uh british drinking history that that isn't a thing that i mean it's the gin yeah. right it's the yes. gin in the 18th century yes.
1: so spirits were much cheaper so i do think it's a price a price yeah. thing so um wine was more expensive and remained more expensive and probably you know the ports and madeiras as they are now you know a bottle of those is is more expensive than a a, a normal bottle of wine right um so because the production is smaller Um, you know, there's less of it. Um, it's potentially a little bit more work to produce it for whatever reason, it's more expensive. And I think it was more expensive then too. So it was a somewhat drink because you Um, could make
0: gin as we all learned during prohibition, you mm, know,
1: in your bathtub.
0: And I know that that's what they were.
1: Yeah, Absolutely um but it also it was interesting you mentioned tea i i did some some work a few years ago on on meal times and and snacks and things and found myself reading quite a bit about beer consumption and then tea consumption mm-hmm. and you know everybody used to drink a lot of, they they didn't drink much water they drank small beer instead right. which is very low alcohol mm-hmm. um so it's not like drinking you know a craft beer all day long right <laughs> it's much much lighter than that um and certainly that was what the poor drank and um i found this hilarious uh, diatribe by the the countess of bedford in the 1720s who was just appalled to find that her laborers had started drinking tea instead of beer (laughs) it's like what on earth do they think they're doing it's an affectation and you know it's it's not good for them (laughs) you know they should be drinking beer which is what is good for them and what enables them to work and what makes them healthy and strong and they should not be drinking this effete too expensive for them thing called well, tea. Tea's for the elite. Yeah.
0: And then and this is something um that I interviewed Tom Standage who wrote The History of the World in 6 Glasses mm-hmm. and one of his chapters is on tea, but I learned um <laughs> and I I feel like I actually learned this when I when I was researching sugar mm. um that tea emerges as the drink of the working class and the poor because it's hot and you stir in sugar yeah. and then you have this illusion of a hot meal yes. and then you
1: have bread. With and it has at least given you some calories. Some calories
0: and then you have bread with jam that barely has any fruit but mm. it has a lot of sugar you know, yes. as well and that becomes your, your tea yes. which we would called dinner or you're or you're having it at the factory yes because it's something that you can bring with you, you and then they easily. are then they serve tea yeah, yeah. so no
1: that's absolutely right yeah. and you know and it's just it's always unbelievable really when you're when you're researching any specific aspect of food which is what I really do more than wine mm-hmm. um, or drinks um, there is always some elite person or other trying to tell everyone else what to do and (laughs) and being very annoyed with these poor people saying they can't afford things but they're eating white bread they should be eating brown bread you know right and um they shouldn't be drinking tea they should be drinking small beer you know all this horrible moralizing and and judgment you know it's it's really very like a lot of the conversations we still have about telling people what they what they should and shouldn't eat yes. for who they are um I bet well I don't I, I won't say I bet it would I hope
0: that one day you come across somebody complaining about their laborer sipping
1: on port <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm gonna I'm gonna try and find it and I you will be the first to know when I find it <laughs> uh I think I'd like you to uh, let's end
0: with um George Washington's uh grump
1: grumpiness about his madeira shipment. Oh yes. Yes, he was very he he could write a f- a fairly acerbic letter at times. Mm-hmm. And um he he was importing a lot of madeira from the island of madeira. Like what's a lot? Well, um it was delivered in pipes and a pipe of Madeira is about 560 bottles worth. Yeah, okay. So a pipe is pretty substantial. Mm-hmm. Um, and he generally ordered two pipes at a time. So over a 1,000 bottles worth in these massive casks. And, um, and he wrote a letter to one of his agents. Um, he'd, got, he'd got this shipment of Madeira from um, Searle and co in Madeira. And he was just livid because instead of it being landed close to his home on the Potomac, um, it had been landed in Maryland and 60 miles away. And he wasn't exactly annoyed that it, um, about the expense of getting it from there to his house. Mm-hmm. He was annoyed because landing it in the wrong place and far from home meant that it was going to be pilfered. Oh, that yeah. common wagoners and other common people would be stealing from this cask. And even worse, um, he could cope with losing some of it, but they usually would fill up, make up the difference with some <gasps> oh. other liquid, oh. um, thus spoiling his wine. Yeah. Well,
0: I... Uh, I guess if he was familiar with the Guildhall Lord
1: Mayor uh, dinner, <laughs> then he would not have been wrong in his suspicion. No, exactly. Well, and I, I, he sounded as though he was speaking from experience. Yeah. You know? he was. He was really quite upset about it. He was, I was. I'd rather it was still in Madeira than landed in Baltimore. In Baltimore. <laughs> um, yeah. Poor George. Yes. <laughs> How he suffered,
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, so this has been a real delight, Jane. Thank you for coming to talk to us about the drinking of fortified wines, not just uh, the how they all got made. Um, well, thank you. It was really lovely of you to invite me. Sure. It's been and, fun. And if people want to um, uh, learn more about what you do or what you're working on, how can they find you or do you want people to find you
1: sometimes? (laughs) I don't mind being found. I love being found. I get invited to places like this if I get found. Um, So I have a website, which I don't update as often as I should, but Mm -hmm. I am still alive and it's still there, Um, janelevi.com. So easy to find. Good. Well,
0: uh, enjoy the rest of your time in New Orleans. And if you all enjoyed the podcast, then It would be wonderful if you shared with anyone that you know that you think would enjoy it. Um, Word of mouth really is the best way for people to find out about podcasts. And if you have not already subscribed or if you have not already joined the Drink and Learn Revelers page on Facebook, you should because then I will be posting. um, Perhaps Jane can share a picture that Prince Regent... um,
1: uh, oh, the voluptuary under the horrors of yeah, the digestion—is yeah, that the you one you mean?
0: <laughs> a picture of old Prinny and um, and also the banquet—that would be yes, nice sure. to, to be able yes, to I post. Will. And um, if you if you enjoy the podcast, it's great if you rate and review it, subscribe—all those things that I ask you to do at the end of every episode. If you want to ask questions or follow me, it's at Drink and Learn across all the social medias. And uh, until next time, cheers, y'all.